Turn, if you would, this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. reading over the last couple of weeks, just dipping into a book that I was given a number of months ago. It's called The Saint's Treasury, and the title page says, The Saint's Treasury Holding Forth, The Incomparable Excellency and Holiness of God. Christ is all in all, the glorious enjoyment of heavenly things by faith, the natural man's bondage to the law and the Christian's liberty by the gospel, and the last sermon is a preparation for judgment. It says, being sundry or various sermons preached in London by the late Reverend and they use the word painful, minister of the gospel, Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, London, 1656. And I got in Christian Life Hour to learn a little bit about being a painful minister of the gospel when I got a piece of glass in my hand. Uh, Didn't really hurt a lot, but somebody noticed it was bleeding. I didn't even realize it. Um, And then I realized I have a little bit more glass embedded in my Bible um, because it was on the podium there. I'm not sure why they called him painful. I certainly have been convicted as I've read through the first sermon, which is the incomparable excellency and holiness of God. And among other things, I wanted to just share this with you, just in terms of our thinking about worship. He said, let Psalm 90, 17 be our prayer. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Oh, grow up more in holiness, which is the beauty of God. Converse much with God that you may be holy. When Moses was 40 days in the mountain conversing with God, he came down with his face shining. And certainly those people who converse much with God will have their faces shine with holiness. There is much to be had by conversing with God, who is a holy God. Show forth the beauty of holiness in your conduct that others may say of that one, if that, uh, that if one beam of holiness is so delightful in a person, then how glorious in holiness is God himself. I remember what a heathen said of the God of the Christians when he saw their courage. He said that the God of the Christians is a great God. Let us walk so holily before others that they can read holiness in our conduct and can be forced to say that the God of this people is a holy God. Especially look to your heart and cleanse it when you draw near to this holy God in holy worship. Then labor to sanctify his name. Look to your feet. Do not come in your filth into the presence of so holy a God. And if we were just to look at the teaching of the book of Hebrews regarding the holiness of our God, 
the holiness of his worship, the reverence and awe that we are to have before God who is a consuming fire, we would humble ourselves if we saw him for who he truly is. And so I want to just urge us today to certainly, as we come before the word of God, consider the greatness of our God and let the Lord use his word in our hearts. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says, therefore, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fire, excuse me, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. We're reading there. Paul, I say Paul, I believe he was the author. The author's continued discussion, but now application of the doctrine he's been teaching through the entire letter, sermon, book, however you put it, begins like a, an essay, proceeds like a sermon, ends like a letter, someone said, the book of Hebrews. And to verse 19, up to verse 19, the writer has argued the superiority of Jesus Christ to any prophet, to all of the angels, the superiority of his position to Moses, Christ as a son over the house, Moses as a servant in the house, Christ's superiority to Aaron as priest, as high priest, and his ministry as superior to the Old Testament ministry, his new covenant ministry as superior to old covenant ministry. That ministry included a sacrifice which was superior because it was perfect. And once it was done, there was no need for any more sacrifice. It was completed. And forgiveness is given for those who place their faith in such a sacrifice. And of course, in such a one, this great priest and that's what he is called in verse 21. It says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. 
this group of people did not lose anything by coming to Christ. They lost connection to an earthly system, which was a shadow passing away and certainly foreshadowed the coming of Christ, but they did not lose a priest. Jesus is the great high priest. He has passed into the heavens. He has offered his sacrifice. His sacrifice was accepted, and he has opened the way for for sinners to come into the presence of a holy God. And this is the wonder of the gospel message, that we would be able to enter into the presence of this God, who in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that way was kept from anyone just entering in by a series of blockades, and certainly the blockade of the priesthood itself, which only the high priest, you remember, could enter into that holiest place and that only once a year and also with blood. But of course, the writer of Hebrews has been arguing, and he restates it here, that Jesus has opened the way and we can confidently enter in. In fact, the encouragement is to draw near to God. To not stay at a distance, but actually to draw near. Notice verse 19, he says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's as the high priest would enter with the blood of bulls and goats. That was the type, the anti-type or the fulfillment of that is Christ. And as Christ shed his blood and his flesh was rent, he he opened the way for us into the very presence of God. Why can we have confidence to enter into God's presence? It's not through anything that we could do. It's not through any righteousness of our own. What it took for us to be able to enter into the presence of God and draw near to God is the blood of Jesus, God's Son, being shed for us, verse 19, And then also his body or his flesh being rent for us as he died upon the cross. Notice verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he, that is Jesus, inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And we understand that when Christ died upon the cross, that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, certainly as a divine signal that the offering had been made and that it was effective. It was a demonstration of God's certainly approval of the sacrifice, but also that the way had been opened. And he is also called in the book of Hebrews, our forerunner. So as he enters into the heavenlies, we also can enter in through what he has done for us. And that's one of the reasons that we can draw near with confidence. We don't have to fear and tremble to to come into the presence of this God because of Christ at the same time as what I just read from Jeremiah Burroughs. Yes, we, we come to God with a sense of his holiness Because this is who he is as a holy God. He has devised and accomplished this way. 
And so we are to hold him in reverence and awe. So there's that reason, verses 19 and 20, with regard to the sacrifice of Christ by which we can confidently draw near. It is his death. It is the shedding of his blood. It's the rending of his flesh. But there's also his life. So verse 19 and 20 testify to his death as the means by which we can have confidence to come into the presence of God, but also by his life. And Hebrews makes this point in other places. But notice the wording in verse 20. It says, since the supplied translator supplied the words we have, a great priest over the house of God. That is a present reality. We do have a priest. If someone were to say, who's your priest? We actually do have a priest. It's not an earthly priest. It's a heavenly priest, but he is a man. He's the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's entered into the heavens. He is our great priest. For the ones who Paul is writing to, of course, if they were to turn to Jesus and abandon this earthly shadow of a system, they would be left without any of that ritual practice, and they would come to a group of people who are confessing Jesus, but if they did that, they would be coming to the substance and not the shadow any longer. And of course, what the writer is seeking to do is to encourage them to not only do that, to draw near to God through that priest, but to stay there, to not abandon that. And I think that's part of the reason here for these encouragements. These encouragements, in addition to draw near, verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's in light of the death of Christ, but it's also in light of the life of Christ as he intercedes for us that we can draw near to God confidently. What does that drawing near mean? Well, I don't know what you think of when you think of drawing near to God. It doesn't mean only we might think of just prayer, for instance. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, James uses that language of drawing near to God. So it, it is prayer, but I like what one person said. He said to draw near to God is not only to pray, though it includes prayer. Nor does it refer to coming to God after death, for it is about being faithful to God in this life. The phrase, talking about draw near, is a metaphor for wholehearted commitment to the God of the new covenant. So that calling to draw near is to worship God, and he says, faith, hope, obedience, steadfastness, and perseverance doing the will of God despite persecution, allegiance to God's Son and priest Jesus Christ and to his one sacrifice of himself for our redemption. 
So this is drawing near to God. It involves your whole life. It involves your worship. And why can we draw near? It's because of Christ. It's because of the blood that was shed for us. It's because of the life that he lives for us so that I know whenever I come to God, I'm never really coming alone to my heavenly father. I have one who sits in the heavens interceding for me. I have the Holy Spirit within who's urging me to pray. And I'm coming to God at his invitation. And this is a command, draw near with confidence. Do you have that confidence? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you believed in what the scripture teaches about his death upon the cross for sinners? Have you believed that he raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God? And have you confessed him as Lord? There's there's a, a gospel presentation and a reception that precedes this drawing near to God. We have to believe the truth, and then we draw near. And for our life, we draw near. And yes, it certainly it means through prayer, but many other ways as well. And when we draw near, the encouragement, the counsel is with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So without any doubting, without any second guessing that this is the way. And again, when we're looking at this generation of believers, these Hebrew believers, you can see how such a transition in the worship in this day would have been quite something for them to believe, and yet many, many of them did. But as time progressed and they were persecuted and they were ostracized and they were shunned, there was the temptation to go back to that old system because of those social issues. In fact, look down at verse 32. He describes some of what was going on. He says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then he promises, the one who's coming is going to come, and don't shrink back. Keep on believing. Sincerely, with a full assurance of faith, that full confidence that my faith in the Lord will prove true, it is true. And then as he describes in the end of verse 22, he describes their salvation in terms of what the high priest used to do as a means of cleansing. If you were to follow the ministry of a high priest, he would have to at times cleanse himself before he offered offerings. I believe that's what is being spoken of there when it says there in verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is not a reference to baptism. This is actually not a reference to, understand what I'm saying here, it's not a reference to physical washing, it's using the physical washing as an illustration of what happens in salvation. Okay, so when you think about 
uh, especially the fact that he uses the word hearts and conscience, this is talking about what God does for us as he saves us and forgives us and cleanses us. Have you been cleansed? Have you been washed? Are you clean in the sight of God? I'm not asking, are you sinless? I'm asking if you come to Jesus for that cleansing, have you, have you been cleansed by God from your sins through faith in Jesus Christ? It's an allusion, of course, to salvation. So that first exhortation to draw near doesn't just refer to prayer. It's really your whole life, and it's in light of the sacrifice of Christ. It's in light of the life of Christ. It's in light of your salvation. End of verse 22. Then look at verse 23. He said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Another exhortation to hold fast. The hope of the believer, if you know Christ, is not only present, it's looking forward to a time when Christ will ultimately deliver you finally and fully, even from, as Paul says, the body of this death and glorifies you. If we look at the biblical picture of salvation, we have been saved. We've been justified through faith in Christ. We are being saved as God changes us and sanctifies us. But there's coming a day when we are saved finally and fully as we're glorified by God's power, body, soul, and spirit, never to sin again. That's our hope. That's our confidence. Um, the writer here is drawing attention to the necessity to hold fast to that confession and to that hope, the hope of our salvation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So what he's calling the Corinthians to do is to hold fast to that gospel message. Now, on the other side of this, we look at the teaching of Scripture, and we know that we're preserved by the power of God. But we're also called ourselves to hold fast. In fact, the writer of Hebrews gives an illustration of this. If you turn back to Hebrews chapter 3, and notice what he says... Verse 6, starting there, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. He's not bringing a question, I don't believe, to the, the issue of eternal security. He's calling those who believe to continue to hold fast that holding fast and that perseverance, we are responsible to do. We also understand that a person is truly saved. God lives in them. He can never leave, and he preserves them by his power. So he works, but we're the ones who hold fast. He works in us. The illustration is from the psalm, which references the children of Israel in the wilderness when they fell and sinned against God. Verse 7, it says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, in the, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never, excuse me, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Now listen to this. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? That same generation who saw the plagues, who came through the Red Sea. They were, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they were baptized with Moses. They went through that experience. And yet with many of them, God was not well pleased. Why? Because they hardened their heart and they disobeyed and they did not continue to believe his promise. Verse 17, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. You see the circumstance in the first century for these Hebrews is to return back to a system that was just a shadow, and they've already come to Christ, and the writer is calling them to hold fast to the confession of their hope, which is Christ, not the shadow. And for us, if you turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, we are to hold fast ourselves. The confession of our hope without wavering, why? Because we believe that God is faithful. Do you believe that God is faithful to his promises? Look through the scriptures and see God's faithfulness to his promises. Even though it was a long time for Abraham and Sarai, Sarah, they finally did see God's fulfillment when God did what he had promised. He performed what he said he would do at a time when both of them actually laughed that God would act at that time in their lives, and yet God brought it about. That's why they named their son Laughter. God did that. He kept his promise. He always does. So have you confessed Christ? And you have been saved. You've, you've, you've been justified. You are being sanctified. The call here is to hold fast to that confession firm until the end. Don't harden your heart. You just keep on holding to that confession. True Christians persevere. They persevere by the power of God, certainly, but they also themselves hold fast. What am I saying? I'm just saying that in sanctification, God works and I work. Does it depend on me ultimately? It depends on God, but God still tells me to hold fast. That's the encouragement here. Now, there's something that can help us help one another in verse 24 and 25, and that is, what does he say? Here's another exhortation to encourage one another. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another 
to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Christian life is not meant to be lived as a solo life. It is meant to be lived in community. It's meant to be lived together. And we are to encourage and help one another. And I'm not just talking about church attendance, although church attendance contributes to our being together and being able to encourage and help one another. I would even argue that you cannot obey the teaching of the New Testament by merely attending church and not having the kind of interaction the Scripture says to. Understand what I mean. It's not just walk in and walk out and have no contact with other believers throughout the course of the week. That's actually sin. Because at a base level, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to greet one another. And just think, how could you obey the one another statements in the New Testament if you're just a walk-in-and-out kind of person? or never walk in person at all, but claim to be a Christian. How can you have tender love for one another? Well, that happens in your heart. How do you express that love as you relate to that other person? How can you, in honor, prefer one another? How can you be of the same mind toward one another? Those are all Romans chapter 12. How can you truly love one another? How can you edify one another, Romans 14, 19? How can you accept one another, Romans 15, 7? How are you able to admonish one another, Romans 15, 14? And certainly, as I said, he said it to the Romans as well. How can you salute one another with a holy kiss or with a sign of loving respect? How can you do that if you don't have interaction with fellow believers? How can you by love serve one another? How can you bear one another's burdens? How can you be kind to one another? How can you forgive one another? All of that assumes relationship and interaction. And yeah, the forgiveness assumes some sin. That's not just something to be practiced in our homes. It's something to be practiced in the church. And of course, it's challenged in the church. How can you submit to one another in the fear of God? How can you comfort one another with the words of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4.18? How can you edify, 1 Thessalonians 5.11? How can you follow that which is good for one another if you're not practicing those one another's? You know, they say that solitary confinement can bring about very serious harm. I learned something this week that there's an international symposium on solitary confinement sponsored by a university. But as they presented the results of their study, among other things, they argued from their research and their studies that solitary confinement can actually bring about serious harm. It actually shortens lives. Now, I'm talking about... Obviously, something that I hope none of us would ever experience, but what if it had to do with our own choosing of that? That's not good for you. That's not good for me. 
It's not good to not be around those who believe in Jesus Christ like you say that you do. And what is he drawing attention to? Well, first of all, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That has to be take that has to take place in person. And as I interact with others, I have to encourage them towards those good things, participate with them. But then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. And I, I don't believe we're only talking about attendance. Attendance is involved, church attendance is involved here, but he's actually talking about withdrawing from the fellowship of believers those who would confess Christ, but because of their fear of persecution, or maybe they have been persecuted, they're drawing back, and they're, they're not assembling together. Even assembling in these days would have drawn attention to their belief in Christ, and for them, could have been a danger. But the writer here is calling them to not forsake their assembling together their assembling together was in Jesus' name, and in Jesus' name, they had believed and needed to continue and hold fast, not draw back. So this is obviously very practical for us. The statements in verse 24 and 25 are very practical. To encourage one another, to consider, that's actually to think about how I can encourage and help others to do what is right and good. And it's not only doing that, and again, attendance is a part of that, but obviously church life as we interact and relate to one another is also a part of that. But notice what he says. He doesn't want to just say this and leave it with just this is something that's important. He actually says this should increase. It should be increasing among God's people. All the more. All the more. Turn it up. Keep it going. Increase. Don't stop. Don't let off the gas, give it more when it comes to this matter of encouraging one another, exhorting one another, stimulating one another to love and to good deeds. Why? Because we see a day approaching, and that day is going to be like no other. It's the day of the Lord Jesus. I believe that's what he's talking about at the end of verse 25 when he says the day drawing near. There's a day coming When the Lord will come, he will pour out his wrath upon his enemies. He will rule with his own. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians testify to it. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give you relief, excuse me, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That day is coming. We believe it by faith. We we hold that as our hope that the wickedness and the sin and the rebellion in this world is going to be dealt with. This isn't just going to continue on without his intervention and his 
just wrath upon those who have not believed his gospel and those who rebel against him. It says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes, and this is our part if you know the Lord, to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. They, when he comes, are going to glorify him, glorify him not only in their praise, but in their likeness to him in that day as he changes them. And what are we going to do in that day? We're going to marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be amazed, I'm sure, at all those angels. But we're going to marvel in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come finally to deliver us. And I would just ask you, what is your confession? I want to encourage you, if your confession is the Lord Jesus, to draw near to God. You have a boldness to be able to do that. He's a holy God, so we need to be careful to recognize who he is. But we are encouraged by the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross for us to draw near. And what else are we encouraged? To hold fast to that confession of our hope and then we can have a part in helping one another. And let's just, by God's grace and with his help, let's turn it up. There are plenty of reasons for turning it up. For me, for you, so that as we are seeking to hold fast, we're encouraged to hold fast. So that as we're drawing near, we're encouraged to draw near. And the Lord is coming and we will see him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we have considered this portion of your word today, we pray that you would grant us grace not only to believe it, but to act according to it. And as we have application of the gospel, and not only how we can ourselves be helped, but also help others, Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us to apply it. And even today, we pray that we would consider one another as to how we can provoke one another to love and to good works. We pray that we might not be an obstacle in the way of doing those things, but that we would be one who submits to your will and pursues that, whether it's those in our own home, our spouse, our children, person next to us in the pew or anyone else who is a true believer, especially those in our church. And we ask for your grace and your help. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And ask the men to come as we prepare for the Lord's table.